This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, A Great and Mighty Destiny, Legacies and Magical Bloodlines in Speculative Fiction. And once again, this week is brought to you by Jules Has Been Reading Things. <laughs> so many of our episodes are. I'm sorry, guys. So the Jules Has Been Reading Things, or Jules got annoyed with something on Twitter. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah, basically, this is something I've kind of been chewing over for a little while, um, for reasons we'll get into. But uh, about a week, two weeks ago, Alan and I finished off The House of the Dragon, which is like the Game of Thrones prequel. Mm-hmm. Um, which is pretty good, by the way. We actually really enjoyed it. Um, it's not... They haven't just rehashed Game of Thrones, which is like the big fear. Yeah. Um, and I think people who really, really love Game of Thrones might actually go one of two ways. They'll either really enjoy it as a piece of backstory, or they'll be really irritated because it doesn't follow the Game, the game of Thrones sort of levels of darkness and stuff initially. Yeah. And it's not quite as much of an ensemble piece in the same way as in it's got a much smaller cast but I mean think of Game of Thrones it's huge yeah so um but it was really well done and it it kind of does really lead into today's topic in terms of bloodline and legacy and stuff and you know how we deal with this particular trope Mm -hmm. so I mean this is a trope we have touched on in episodes about say chosen ones yeah, uh, it's a very specific subsection of the trope that bears closer examinations, and it's rife in fantasy and science fiction, and to some extent horror. Sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly. Basically, every time you even flirt with having a royal family or an aristocracy where position, power, and wealth are inherited, you're giving one person specific privileges over another. Yeah, you're tapping into this trope. Yeah. Um. So. Everyone will be familiar with this trope, um, even if you might at first go, well, I'm not really. It's one that, you know, you just see over and over again. It It's pretty much been a trope that that has existed from, you know, myths, legends and things like that. It has, you know, it, it it's got its place within kind of the canon of fantasy and stuff like that because of its prevalence in myths and epic sagas and stuff like that so everyone will be familiar with it um and i think most people will have you know um you most people will have at least one example of it that they like um i know that i personally do quite like it um though of course, as with anything, you can have too much of a good thing and sometimes you just think, actually, did we need that in this story? Or actually, I'd rather have not had it in this story. Um, but I I kind of like it still, regardless. Yeah, I mean, it definitely comes with some pluses and minuses, which yeah. we'll obviously get into. Um, I just want to introduce a little caveat myself here. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do love this as a fantasy trope. Um, from a writing perspective, there are so many things you can do with it. Yeah. And from a reader's perspective, it can often go hand in hand with the sins of the father trope, which I also love, mm-hmm. um, which presents a very potent brew indeed. Or, you know, that that's kind of like catnip for me. I'll definitely get in there on a fantasy <laughs> novel with that. I'll do that. Go and roll around in it. <laughs> it's slightly high. 
Um, so I you work in a library, and it's just that like, oh no, Jules has gotten into the. Uh... She's gotten into the fancy books <laughs> the... again. So I'll go and fish her out with yeah. one of the books. <laughs> it's just you rolling around on these books, just purring. <laughs> Thank you for that imagery. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, so basically, I'm recusing myself slightly because I'm not entirely unbiased. Uh, however, I do not agree with the perspective that this trope should die a death, and authors who use it a little better than colonialists, which seems to be a fashionable opinion lately. Um, I just think that's a really facile reading of the text. Um, it's childish and a somewhat pig-headed perspective, not to mince my words. Um, I think there are ways for this trope to be done right, and you can explore all the systems of power and the rot within systems of power mm -hmm. by using this trope as well. So essentially that is where this episode has come from. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpick there. And again, you can, as with everything, you can find a basis for certain arguments, but when you try and take a trope which is as well established as this one which has as much variety as as you know as anything and um of which the depth and, and the way that it's done will rely entirely on the author not on the value of the trope itself it's it's not a good idea to ever paint everything you know with one brush to say well that that's just how it is um because in doing so you actually close the door on a lot of other you know, a lot of good stuff, as well as stuff that you might find isn't good um, in writing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, little history lesson, you know how I like to slip these in. Let's look at the mm -hmm. origins of, of this, basically the, the idea where it's really come from. Yeah. Um, so the idea that a small group of people are better than others and deserve a position of power or respect based solely on their ancestry rather than their individual merit is an old one, but mm -hmm. you know, there are older systems. Um, without completely derailing my, this discussion before we even get started, every familial monarchy that has ever existed has come out of this idea. Mm -hmm. um, so, however, the idea that a crown is inherited by the eldest son is comparatively recent, at least it is in Britain. Yeah. Uh, Pre-1066, kings were elected by the Wittnerschmott. Often kings were chosen from established families who had the wealth and connection to back them. And the preceding king would usually lobby for their own kin, often a son. I mean, why wouldn't you? You'd, been, yeah. you'd probably have been training that person to be king after you. Yeah. Um, so there was a practical consideration there. And yes, you do kind of want one of your own who is going to further your own values and build on the successes that you've had to, to be the person who comes next. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't written in stone. And it, it, powerful men and women, many of whom listen to their own people so you know leaders of their communities would all gather in this witness and would vote on the appointment so yeah. pre to, pre there's a really interesting little piece of um of historical non-fiction um, there's some articles and things if anyone's interested let me know I'm, I'm really willing to send you this stuff because i just want to share it but um with harold goodwinson godwinson before he um <laughs> I don't know if people are aware of this, but he ended up shipwrecked um, in France, where William of Normandy, uh, where he got captured by their local lord, and William of Normandy heard about it and was kind of like, no, you're not having the future potential king of England. That one's mine. So he just basically rocked up on this lord and demanded the hostage that this guy was keeping. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Harold went with William and was treated as an honoured guest, but was essentially also still a hostage and a prisoner for a long time. Yeah. And he helped William with a number of campaigns against his revolting nobles. He's revolting as in they were revolting against <laughs> the Duke of Normandy, not as in it. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> well, well, some of them probably were, you know. Um, and it seems that there was actually a genuine friendship there. And then William largely tricked Harold to swear an oath that Harold would support William's bid to become the next king after Edward the Confessor died. Mm. Um, having him swear it on holy relics, which he'd covered up with a cloth. And, you know, bearing in mind that if you swear on a holy relic, you better be damn sure you're going to keep it. At least that was the mindset at the time. Yeah. Obviously, Harold had no intention of keeping this oath. Not the slightest intention. Harold wanted to be the next king of England. <laughs> after all, it was his sister who was married to Edward the Confessor, yeah. Um, and the reason that Harold had ended up shipwrecked in France in the first place was that Harold was on a campaign trail around the British Isles getting support for his bid for kingship. Yeah. And that's the bit that I think is really interesting, that they were treated almost like presidential elections where the prospective candidate would go on trail or some of his representatives would and drum up support in the local populace. Yeah. So anyway, so I've gone off on a tangent now. I do, I do uh, apologise. Um <laughs> Anyway, if we go even further back to back than Saxon England, a similar system was used to choose Pictish kings. Uh, those who were chosen had to be part of a recognised royal bloodline, it's true, but the king's son was never chosen. Mm. Um, this is under the, the understanding of blood purity, basically, whereby, you know, the only true way they thought you could trace um, a bloodline's purity was through the matrilineal line. Yeah, because you could guarantee then that... Uh... Because a king's a king's son might not actually be his son, but it's a lot harder to to disprove. Um, the, you know. the, the, the queen's son is actually yeah. <laughs> not yeah. her son. It's yeah. like because she was kind of there. <laughs> yeah. So, which is why very often you would see situations whereby you'd have um, the, the the next heir wouldn't be the king's son, but would be his nephew. Yeah, and there were a lot of systems, certainly um, in the Orkneys before the Orkneys actually became the Orkneys. Yeah. Um, that was that was how kings were chosen there. It was the nephew that was became the ruler, etc. Um anyway, the uh, the the king's nephew sorry, the um the king's nephew would have been a strong contender, but it again wasn't a done deal. Yeah. It, this had to be voted in by a number of people, including at the time the local Druid population who were very, very strong political strategists. Yeah. So, yeah, a king might come from a royal line, thanks to his mother, but his son was not royal because he could not confer that royal blood on his own son, unless he married a sister or close cousin, but we're not going to go there right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, this is a much more of a closed system, but there were physical, mental and religious trials which had to be passed, after which the council would choose the best candidate. And I am oversimplifying this just to give you the gist. Yeah. Um, and obviously there were certainly political players, as we've said, some of the Druids. In fact, we've actually got written records of some of the Druids who were involved in this sort of stuff, who were very definitely scheming to get their candidate on the throne. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It... <laughs> the other thing to also remember, of course, is that when we think about kings in that sense back then, it's a, it's a slightly different system also in terms of we, there were a lot more kings um, oh, good, yeah. <laughs> so many kings and we use the word kings obviously that wouldn't have been the word that they would have used um, so you know 
we don't really ha- have the king is the closest equivalent but you know you could say yeah. it's chieftain or, or something along those lines as well yeah i mean once you get to sort of the time of uh robert and um Aoife, the irish princess Aoife yeah. who um you know that was how the that was how the english got a foothold in ireland <laughs> spoiler yeah. alert guys but at that point yeah she was the daughter of a king but there version of a king was the equivalent of our the english version of an earl yeah at the time because there were just so many of them so you had king 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 and high king over here kind of thing yeah <laughs> exactly so that it, it is also worth mentioning you know keeping that in mind um but yeah so it would have been this kind of this very much um this idea of of you know an election or things like that um and what's interesting, I think, is that obviously when, you know, before the sort of, before the Romans kind of came in and sort of took over parts of Britain, um, you know, that this general kind of election sort of thing would have would have happened. And then the Romans came in and the Romans would have prob- would have really allowed that to continue happening, whereby to a certain degree they would have also wanted to influence things um but the romans actually succeeded so much in their conquest by letting people um you know people they approved of rule their own people as it were so they didn't always just put romans you know in charge they would actually they would have their own sort of chieftains and stuff like that who were actually locals who would continue but would be sort of working with the romans or be under roman rule etc yeah, I mean, um, it wasn't in their best interest to come in and remove the political power structures, with the exception of the Druids, who they pretty much massacred because they, yeah. because the Druids were not interested in paying tithes to Rome. The Druids were kind of like, no, we're going to say the gods are against these people, so that you'll go into a foaming rage and start attacking the Romans every time they show up. Yeah, and what's interesting is that the Romans, despite the fact that you know, obviously. Caesar changed everything. Um, we don't have time to go into the whole of Roman history, but obviously, at one point, it was that they didn't have like a, a big leader, and then they suddenly did have an emperor, and and that was why part of why Caesar got stabbed, etc. And the um, rest of Roman history is them trying to get back to a republic and failing yeah, every time, and failing. Yeah, but what's interesting, of course, is they bring over with them these ideas that come from Greece. Yeah. And one of the best examples of kind of that bloodline trope that we really see, uh, you can see it in a lot of Greek and therefore with Roman mythology of this king was, uh, you know, this person was king or this line was they were kings because they were descendants of Zeus or because they would, well, actually, to be honest, most people are descendants of Zeus in some form or another. Yeah, as we've said before, couldn't keep it in his robes. Couldn't keep it in his robes. Um... So yeah, you you kind of start to get those ideas um, with kind of the Romans and stuff like that um, being brought in, um, and then of course they're they're kind of in Britain for a little while, sort of, even though Britain is sort of between things a tiny bit. And then of course the Saxons arrive. You know, there wasn't I think there was there wasn't that many years between the Romans leaving and the Saxons arriving in 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 Britain. Um, so like it never really kind of solidified obviously until much later Uh, but of course it wasn't just Greek mythology which was feeding into this either no Um, yeah it wasn't entirely the early Britons and the Irish 
Mm -hmm. who were the only ones who practiced this kind of elected kingship. If you no. delve into the life of Jesus as a historical figure, and mm -hmm. it's very likely that there was a historical figure called Yeshua who fits the bill, mm -hmm. um, and he was, he was again, a, a strong political contender and a, a strong political player, um, you discover that this historical figure was part of a sect of Hellenic Jews who were deliberately trying to breed a messiah from David's royal line. That's where why some of the New Testament is really confusingly written. Yeah. Um, not just because there's four main authors and a bunch of others, but also because a lot of the context has been lost. So when they talk about from David's royal line, they are literally talking about from King David, you know, of King Solomon, etc., etc. That they were very specifically trying to breed messianic figures from this particular line. Mm. Um, and <laughs> the whole sort of, the scene with John the Baptist, who was also one of the 13 candidates for this mess messiah. Yeah. Um, and him sort of baptising Jesus. Well, that was one political candidate stepping down and throwing support behind another. That's yeah. literally what that entire thing was about. That's why so... I mean, in, t as a child hearing this story, it was so confusing that so many people got annoyed with John the Baptist who baptised Jesus. <laughs> it's like, why is everyone angry? And nobody could explain digging into it many many years later it's like oh this was a political power play i get it now <laughs> yeah <laughs> it makes so much more sense anyway but you really have to read the bible closely and then fact check against historical sources it's fascinating but i guess if you are christian it's also a bit like confronting as well yeah but so you do within that have that whole okay we've got to emphasize this this line um you know, which kind of leads directly. It's like linking all the heroes, <laughs> all of yeah. our heroes. We've got, we've got to link it in. Um, and again, also at the time, and I'm, I'm thinking about how we kind of start to get it in, obviously in, in sort of uh, well-known sort of Western British kind of literature and stuff like that. Because obviously, when we think about fantasy as a trope, we have to, we have to look at Tolkien. Um, I'm not saying Tolkien is the first person who used fantastical elements, because obviously he wasn't. Um, but the fantasy trope, sorry, the f fantasy genre as it is, um, you know, it really that the the genre as it, as it became named is because of Tolkien, um, and Tolkien was drawing on certain mythologies which had then also been influenced by first of all the Romans and Greek mythology. We can't argue that. Um, even if he's, you know, he said, well, I'm not drawing from that exactly. You have to bear in mind that if, an, if, if a group of people come and occupy a land for a very long time, yeah. they are going to feed into, you know, the Romans loved sharing and <laughs> sharing is caring. They, <laughs> they loved getting in there and sort of sharing um, little bits and bobs and taking other bits and bobs. So well, first yeah, of all, it's like it's the whole thing like oh who's this god that you're worshipping here in this grove ah well that would be the god Nodens Nodens really that sounds awfully like Mars let's build a temple here and call him Mars Nodens yeah exactly <laughs> and you know and, and slowly things would be kind of moved around things would be shared that's just that was just the nature of it so um, but then the other thing is, of course, he did draw a lot on sort of Anglo, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon stuff. And the thing you have to remember is that <clears throat> if you look at uh, Norse mythology, um, all of humanity, there are two kind of origins of sort of like of humanity, really, um, which is that first of all, obviously, um, uh, 
Lothar Odin and uh, the other one I can't, whose name is, abandons me at the moment created man and woman out of stuff that they found um, and <laughs> set them off. <laughs> oh, there you this, are. This off is you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> out of pasta, um, pasta and hot glue. Uh, they they made they made man and woman um, out of probably about of tree trunks or something like that, whatever, um, and set them off into the world. And then Heimdall went around, and <laughs> this is my favorite origin myth ever. Heimdall went around. He met a couple. <laughs> he would then get into bed with both of them. <laughs> For several days. As you do. As you do. <laughs> I'm just out there having all the threesomes. Um and and basically they the the couple would then have children. So these children would be of both of them, but also be of Heimdall. And Heimdall did this with three groups of people, and essentially the whole point of this is that Heimdall is kind of like one of the fathers of all men. Um yeah. but he he created in that three distinct classes so the ruling class um the uh the sort of the kind of the the middle sort of working the farming class or something like that and then the the basically the servant class yeah um so this was like and so there was this concept of these three classes um all descended from one god uh, but the the god has basically just had already kind of decided, really, as it were, where they all fit, um, and you know how you know how they should be honoured, and so it was this established thing, which was again linked to the gods, and the ruling class were descended from the gods, but not just descended from Heimdall, but with Heimdall's blessing to be the ruling class, as it were. Yeah. Um, so all of these these concepts obviously come together and uh, and congeal to form <laughs> <laughs> to form the trope we know as the bloodline legacy trope. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I'm sorry. I'm just going to say this. I'm a little bit stuck on the idea of of Odin and whoever finding random things and like the Wombles making good use of the things that they find. <laughs> making man. Work. I'm sorry. I've got the Wombles theme tune in my head. Now. <laughs> Yeah, it was apparently they were just walking across the beach and they were like, oh, check this out. <laughs> it was the three brothers and they all just kind of, they all just did different bits of bobs. Um, yes. Um, yeah. So, right, right, okay, I could get, get really sidetracked on this. <laughs> sort of wom- the wombling gods thing. Uh, okay, so what does all this have to do with writing fiction? Now, as fascinating as the bare bones of history is, and it is fascinating, uh, leadership should be conferred by aptitude rather than divine right or being born into the right family or at least mm. it's better for everybody if it is yeah divine right the right of kings is a fantastic piece of pr spin that states that if you are monarch you're there because god chose you for the task yeah um and again this goes all the way back into mythologies um across you know all sorts of different sides <laughs> It really is. Um, the reality is, if you are monarch, chances are it's because your ancestors were better political players and defeated or wiped out the opposition. Mm-hmm. You may have ancestors who were excellent rulers, but at one point, one of them was a bigger bastard than anybody else and killed a lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
which is an oversimplification, but generally speaking, nobody gets to be king by being a really good person, or at least a line doesn't become, is, is not begat, 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 yes, out of um, someone coming along saying, I think I'd make a really, really good king. You know, I really <laughs> care about the people. Um, that doesn't generally happen. No. Um, and you know this kind of problematic thinking can and does bleed into the lazier versions of the magical bloodline trope yeah um and it's this is where i'm like okay i love this trope because again i like the whole sort of like you're stuck with this the good and the bad now deal with it whether you want it or not i love that idea but um i have to say would i really want to be saying this character is better than anyone else not because they have worked studied strived and are more compassionate or brilliant or a brilliant tactician and battle leader but simply because they were born in the right marriage bed at which point it's like that story had better be going somewhere where it starts unpacking the rot within systems of power because otherwise you've lost me yeah no i completely agree um and I think people have sort of tackled it in lots of different ways and uh, you know we're going to look into the problems with the trope and we're going to look into uh, what it does right but I think one thing that has worked for a lot of people so that they can use this trope is to basically by setting it in a faux you know historical setting or actually using a real historical setting they put emphasis on the trope not in terms of it being well that therefore means he is the right leader but rather that that you know that means that people are going to support him because he has that right and they all currently think that he is therefore the right leader or by actually saying well i'm actually literally drawing from the kind of the myths here and we are actually having gods here who are saying this is the right leader etc yeah absolutely okay let's have a look at some of the problems with the trope first and then we can look at the good bits um so first of all it can be elitist i don't think many we can really disagree with that when people say oh this is an elitist trope well yes it absolutely can be the idea that power is confirmed by you being conferred by you being born to the right family yeah that might actually be true if we're talking about things like magical bloodlines and what have you Mm -hmm. but you are excluding people who then don't belong to that bloodline so you either in fact i'm not going to talk about how to fix it now but yeah that's I mean, I think the thing is, I've read a lot of fantasy a bit like that um, in the 80s and 90s, and I wasn't necessarily thinking back in the 80s, and well, I was a child, so I wasn't really thinking back in the 80s and 90s, is this elitist? I was thinking, I want to identify with this character because they're cool. Yeah. And that's a legitimate way to enjoy fantasy. I don't think you should always feel that you have to interrogate it for systems of power. Sometimes a story is just a story for you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, as a writer looking at it, I'm like, yeah, that's um, a bit wince-inducing. Yeah. Um, and again, it's not about saying, well, therefore you can't do it. But I think, as we'll talk about in a second, how, you know, there are ways in which you can kind of, you know, you've got to ask, why am I doing this? And also, um, how does it all kind of tie in? And be careful also that what you're saying is not is that you're not actually trying to put out a narrative which is you know actually meant to be read as there are some people who are inherently better than others yeah they're they're of more value for no reason other than they just happen to be born in the right place um, which is troubling okay i think the one of the problems with this trope is it can be handled in a lazy way yeah. So, for example, the author is either unable or maybe genuinely can't be bothered to substantiate why this main character deserves this great 
destiny and all its privileges. Mm. Um, so a magical bloodline is used as a sort of just because, yeah. um, like a shortcut just to paper over the fact that they haven't really justified why the reader should be rooting for this person with all these advantages. It's the too much candy thing. Yeah. Um, and obviously one way that a lot of people will kind of <laughs> sort of jump away from this is that they'll be like, well, it's okay. What we're going to do instead is we're going to say, have this character who's got this magical bloodline, but for some reason they've been raised in anonymity or they were cast out or they were the younger sibling or, or something along those lines, which to be honest, I'm not against. I There are several books that you know, I really I love that. I mean, that's I Once that. and Future King, isn't it? You know, yeah, that's... yeah, it is, exactly. The whole King Arthur obviously, ra you know, raised off um, off screen, as it were. <laughs> you know, he had a, you know, he, he wasn't there. He, he didn't learn. And weirdly enough, actually, sometimes they do that and they're like, you know, and I actually think that that's not necessarily, it's good for a story, but it's not necessarily good for, you know, sort of being king. Because actually, if you are if you if you are running a system whereby you said right well my son is going to be king by right of rulership or etc um you kind of do have this two-sided thing where you're like okay so the guy we're supposed to be rooting for has been raised as a servant or or just in a sort of low class or something like that what ha do they know about ruling then yeah i mean really you know, if you need to if you're being the whole thing about people being groomed to rule is that they start learning statescraft from like when they're six or seven years old, um, the late Queen Elizabeth II was learning statecraft from about six or seven years old. So yeah. to, to the extent where she perhaps didn't get as broad an education in other matters as she would have wished and found herself quite ignorant when she came to the throne of other things. But she absolutely knew about statecraft and yeah. the Constitution. Yeah, um, and you know you would have sort of young princes going way back who would obviously have been instructed in a lot of ways who would have also had a senses of duty um i say when i say sense of duty they would have basically you know had parameters laid out from a very young age where they knew what they were going to have to do at certain times um and obviously as individuals some of them took to that very well some of them didn't take to that very well um and etc but the point is that they had been trained for a job literally from a very, very young age. Um, and the way that I think that people can get around this is by having, you know, you're like, uh, okay, so a really good example of this is if we look at the Grisha series, you obviously have Prince Nikolai, who does kind of then go off and become king. And he's the youngest son. Um, and there's this whole implication that he isn't even just the youngest son, he's actually a bastard, so he's not actually of the royal line at all. Um, he's the, obviously the queen's son, but not the king's son. Um, and his whole thing is that he's not in line for the throne, his older brother is. And so he goes off, and he goes off and he actually, you know, goes and fights in the army he goes off and he goes does different things he travels and stuff like that and you have here a story of someone who's kind of becomes a bit of an outcast but in doing so actually goes off and really learns the practical elements of of rulership not just the the decadent luxuries of sort of sitting in a castle but actually i'm going to the front lines i'm going to see how this all works um and so i think you can do it like that as well where you say oh they weren't raised in a palace they were but actually they, they know how to rule because they went out and into the world and they've experienced it. Yeah. 
I mean, you definitely still need to do a bit of brushing up on the constitution if you've yes. got one. But, <laughs> but yeah. But sometimes it's good to have an advisor then. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Other other thing reasons the trope can be bad. Um, it can be divisive. I mean, yeah. this is again another pretty obvious one. You say, well, this family and these people over here have got this divine right of kings. It uh, doesn't even have to be divine right of kings. It can be a magical bloodline. They can come from a long line of witches or what have you. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's their right. It's in their DNA. It's in their blood, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, but these people over here, they haven't got it. And that's it. And they're not as exciting. They're a bit lesser. And you might not even mean to say they're lesser, but you're kind of doing it by saying that they cannot aspire to what this, this group of people has. If you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, a really fun way of actually kind of um, flipping that around is to actually acknowledge the fact that actually it's nothing to do with what people actually have the potential to have um, and just what people have the access to. So, for example, in the, uh, you know, in the Dark Magician, in the Black Magician's trilogy by Trudy Canavan, it's not that, um, you know, the, the working class people don't have magic. It's that they don't have the access to the training for it yeah. that all of the upper classes do. Um, and it's something also I did the same in um, in the Hamashia cycle is that technically most humans can use magic to uh, to varying degrees, but it's about learning to do it. And there are among every sort of class people who've got obviously very different um, abilities and might have very good natural um, magical abilities. Um, but if they don't have the access to be able to learn it, because it's a very complicated thing to learn, um, then they're just not going to be able to use it. Which is yeah. why the Magi are basically made up of of wealthy people, because all the people who are Magi went to the Magi schools, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's like you know, being able to go off to an Ivy League college in America, isn't it? Or Oxford or Cambridge over here. Yeah. Something uh, like that. Exactly, yeah. And it's it's also kind of like being said, if you don't have a natural aptitude for learning, you know, like very um, difficult mathematics uh, or engineering just from reading a book, then you're, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to just be able to master magic. And the whole thing with Rufus is that he was that bookworm. <laughs> he was the person who woke up naturally and went, mm, maths, and he just knew it instinctually. <laughs> Yeah, so the final two points on why a trip could be bad, we'll get on to more of the how you can do it right in a moment. Yeah. Um, if you're not careful, you, you you actually can be coming across as a bit colonialist or racist without meaning to. Yeah. And I think that's when you link an ability to somebody's ethnicity, even if you do it unintentionally. <laughs> and I can see how you would do it unintentionally because you say, uh, well, this particular ability or this magical bloodline, this divine right of kings, belongs to this people this people come from this area ergo these they have these physiological traits mm. and it's only when you're editing the book or hopefully it's when you're editing the book you go hang on a minute <laughs> have i just created this huge divide <laughs> based on race because that's a really bad thing to do yeah and again it it really kind of depends on how you sort of work it because if i talk about avatar the last airbender obviously they have this whole thing where different, you know, there there are different sort of tribe. Uh, there are four main different tribes, which is obviously the air, um, the air nomads, uh, the water tribe, the fire nation, um, 
and the Earth Kingdom. And within each of those different tribes, you will have people who have the ability to use those elements, essentially. And it is to do with, you know, it, it it's kind of mixed in with, with who they are as people. Um, but what's interesting is that in like some of the the sort of the later sort of sequels and stuff like that as the tribes and and the different people start to kind of merge and marry and stuff like that you can have someone who is of technically is of the fire nation and looks like a fire nation person um and yet can use the earth bending instead etc um and it's not about you know the segregate and and you can then have within families like in the legend of Korra, you have a family um and one of one of the brothers is a, is a firebender and the other one is an earthbender yeah um so it's uh, but it's yeah and it was to do with okay well they have this family lineage which goes back to these original sort of four quite originally segregated sort of peoples who expanded and, and sort of started to intermarry etc yeah um final point it's not very far from here to a nasty eugenics argument yes <laughs> um on, on that last point as in you know i'm going to accidentally link this ability and this this bloodline or whatever um, this legacy with these people who look like this because they come from this area and then suddenly it's like oh hang on they're supposed to be better than everybody else so i guess they keep themselves pure by intermarrying amongst their own kind and then it's like hang on a minute <laughs> i've got a system based on eugenics yeah and again i mean you might actually still want to write that um but then <laughs> you, you know you might want to do it you know do a bit of the targaryen thing and say what are do the consequences of this <laughs> yeah do, do it you know if you want to explore that that's fine in fact if you want to explore any of this stuff on the bad side it's fine just absolutely do it consciously don't slip it in by accident or out of laziness i guess yeah. is what we're saying okay so how do you do the trope right um, a lot of this is probably opinion, but I also think it holds a fair bit of weight logically, so we'll see how we go. Yeah. Um, uh, please, if you... Fire away! <laughs> yeah, sure, okay. So, um, like any great advantage, um, it should also be the source of your main character's greatest weakness. Um, so as with any kind of advantage, if you've got this whole sort of bloodline trope, um, as well as being the advantage to your main character it should also be the source of their greatest weakness um and this is something we've also discussed whenever you have any kind of like a virtue is that usually the virtue is also linked to the greatest flaw they're not separate things but rather part of the spectrum so you kind of want to do the same thing here yeah absolutely um there's like loads and loads of examples of this but if i take um m from i belong to the earth to yeah. start with it's just that, yeah, she, I mean, if you go through that series, by the end of it, she's kind of a powerhouse. Yeah. But if you start the series, it's stopping her living any semblance of a normal life. It's getting in the way of everything, including healing from this terrible trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, to, to many degrees, it's the same with Rufus in that he, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of, particularly if we just look, even if we just look at book one, um, Rufus is obviously, he's very powerful in terms of his magic, but the real source of his abilities is his high creativity, is that he's just got such a natural aptitude because of his intellect, that he's very good at kind of just doing stuff on the spot where other people have to take a long time to prepare. Yeah. Um, and 
his you know he's got all this magic and yet it is also one of the sources of a source of incredible anxiety for him um to the point that he's repressed himself he stopped trying to do it and he's kind of scared of himself as well um so it it actually hinders him just as much yeah as it helps him in fact i think it hinders him from most of the first book yeah it does seem to be kind of an issue yeah <laughs> other than like when he gets a really emotional or angry moment and just bursts into flames <laughs> literally yeah but then again setting yourself on fire as a defense mechanism isn't actually the best idea always um or as we ever. kind of or ever as we see a little bit more of in the second book where he starts to, he is leaning a little bit too much into these emotional things and it really starts to take him down a dark path yeah um okay you can also use the trope to examine elitist thinking so I talk about the Bene Gesserit from June a lot because I just think they're fantastic, but I am not unaware of the fact, and I've said this before, they are space eugenicists. Yeah. They are very definitely being exclusive. They're not exclusive on the grounds of race or anything like that, but they are exclusive on the grounds of gender. They want to concentrate uh, the power within this this group of basically religious women, mm-hmm. although this, the, the religion really is themselves, um, and they want to wield political power, and they are very good at what they do. They are yeah. incredibly good um, as a force by themselves. They are something to be reckoned with. Um, and and yet, at the same time, if you read them, you, you'll see every so often you'll get at least one Benny Gesserit sister, if not two or three, sort of questioning the system they're part of, because... Yeah, in theory it sounds good, but in practice it's like we're pulling the strings behind all these noble houses and things, and lots and lots of people are dying. Yeah. And this, I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but this this is not a good thing. Also, this whole sort of like, yeah, we're going to put you in this house, you're going to practice the arts in this way to lure this lord into marrying you, because we think you would, we, you know, we want to preserve that genetic strain. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay... There's, there's something a bit cultish about the whole thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and I guess that is, you know, and, and it, also the fact that it, it leans into then the whole idea of uh, with June, it's not about actually there being this sort of this prophesized thing, but rather that one makes one's own prophecy. One becomes the figure that one, you know, yeah, you know you... It, it's leaning into what people want and expect rather than what is the reality. Absolutely, and the Bene Gesserit have been very much involved in scattering seed legends and seed religions around. Mm-hmm. And if you you've got the wit and you understand what's going on, like Jessica does, and like she's mm-hmm. taught her son Paul to do, uh, you know which buttons to press to get people to respond so that they genuinely think you're the Messiah. Yeah, it's quite disturbing when you really think about it. And yet, at the same time, you're still their best chance of hope for a different world going forward yeah. and it, it kind of also brings up this whole idea of actually is someone you know if if we use that word messiah if if, if we use that you know the, the rightful king or things like that um you know if everyone believes in something and you take that role then it becomes true to a certain degree yeah you, you know? make your own reality absolutely yeah um, so yeah, I think that that can be a really good way of sort of looking at it. 
Um, the next one is, of course, when it combines with the sins of the father. So it's not actually an advantage at all. Um, or rather, it, you know, it can provide advantages or things like that, but it, it's got this whole legacy that is a t that's tied to it that isn't very, very good at all. Um, an excellent example of this is obviously Kieran. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it turns out that, okay, spoiler alert, but, you know, the books have been out for, I mean, I worked out that I Belong to the Earth is almost 10 years old now. Oh, God. I know, very nearly 10 year anniversary. But anyway, the books run out for ages, so spoiler, but it turns out that Kieran is, has got um, an old Irish bloodline where he was actually part of one of the bloodlines belonging to the, the old kings of Ireland. Mm. And that particular bloodline had intermarried at one point um, with... Uh, with a Tuathodanan woman, yeah, and everything was going really, really well until that particular lord killed his wife, yeah, and the the other the, the other the other were kind of like, we're not happy that you killed our sister. Okay, we're gonna curse every male in your line from here to Kingdom Come. Yep, <laughs> which is where Kieran finds himself. Um. And it's, uh, you know, um, if we then go into uh, sort of later books with Kieran, first of all, you know, it causes problems with the Banshee. Next of all, it, it causes problems with just the she. <laughs> it's just, again, spoilers, but they flat out kidnap him uh, for reasons. Um, but he walks away with a kind of an inheritance that comes from that, which gives him certain advantages, but it's tied with a lot of not very nice things. Um, I think the same could be said of Kestrel. Again, people have only had the briefest interactions with Kestrel so far um, without going into kind of sort of the ins and outs of, of who she is. Uh, she has this power, which she's inherited. Um, it has basically but with the power that she's inherited she's also inherited this kind of this mantle um and this mantle basically is provenance is constantly trying to kill her <laughs> it's like yeah you can have this fantastic thing it sounds really good doesn't it on paper oh here's the reality yeah <laughs> why is everything trying to kill me yeah <laughs> constantly constantly trying to she and what happens is that she inherits this mantle and with the mantle she inherits all of the enemies that came along with it um and a very very nasty prophecy um which isn't very promising for her future prospects um so not a great time in that respect <laughs> yeah Okay, other things you can do to get the trope right. You can make it the centre of the narrative and have the main character gradually reassess the rot in the system. Mm -hmm. um, this works really, really well if you want to write political fantasy or political science fiction. And it is actually one of my favourite iterations of the trope, just because I really like a well-led, nuanced, political kind of fantasy thriller, um, fantasy science fiction thing. Mm -hmm. That's something I enjoy. Um, the traitor Baru Cormorant. Uh, there's no real magical bloodline or anything. She's just a very, very bright child who gets used by the the the, um, the masquerade, the empire. Yeah. Um, and that's a great example of political fantasy. But I mean, there's there's lots of others. There's the Nevernight series where Mia has inherited some sort of shadow monster type abilities from someone. She assumes her father. Mm. 
Um, and this all goes with sort of a bloodline and the sense of the father revenge plot and everything. And there's a lot of politics and coming to terms with the rot in the system as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I like that. I don't want black and white thinking in my fantasy and science fiction, I, I guess, is, is where I'm coming from on that one. Yeah, it's in the Sons of Thestian, the Hamashia Cycle series. Um, obviously, there is this this whole bloodline thing where you've got the Delphi family. Um, and the whole concept was that the Delphi and the, and the Hamartians who came together to create the city of Hamartia agreed they would rule together um, and that they would basically swap between them to sort of to rule. Yeah. Um, and it would be upon a, a kind of an election basis, essentially. So it would be someone of the Delphi family would be chosen, elected, someone of the Hamartia family would be chosen, elected, etc. Um, and then, of course, time went on, and that's not what happened. And the Hamartians said, no, no, you Delphi are too magical to rule a human kingdom. You're not human enough. So the Delphi went, okay, all right. So we will just continue to marry in with humans until we become more and more human. Um, but until then, none of the Hamartian rulers are allowed to use magic either, because apparently that's the stipulation. <laughs> um but it was this whole idea of the Hamartians had been oath breakers and therefore because the, the city was kind of pending on this kind of oath which hadn't been fulfilled, uh, there's this whole superstition of therefore the Delphi have the right to rule. So you And, you know, behind that you have the Cathracts who want the Hamartians to rule and you have the, you know, the Delphi knights and stuff like that who want the Delphi to rule. And it's not actually really anything to do with that yes there might be some sort of magics in play um but the corruptions the problems and stuff like that that's happened as you kind of find out sort of later on in the book and and you know these deaths and it's it's just become been because these two kind of players on either side have been like no our side should rule our side should rule <laughs> and they've been causing all this trouble so um jonathan's right to rule and stuff like that and then obviously later on joshua's um, is based most mostly on the fact that they're using the fact that they're Delphi um, to rally people. Um, and it's not actually anything to do with necessarily kind of a right, but rather that you've got all these gods who are playing around. You've got all of this kind of, play, uh, you know, paying into it, but it's the name. They, they need the name, essentially, which will become a problem later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so another one is if you decide you do want to have magical bloodline with talents, and I, again, I mean, obviously I would be a huge hypocrite if I said you Same. can't do that. <laughs> um, essentially, if you if you want to do that, absolutely fine, but um, don't include everyone else. Don't exclude everyone else. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> and don't include anyone else. Only have that... No, sorry. Um, sorry. I was... <laughs> I had a moment there. Don't exclude everyone else. Yeah, um, I, th I won't say I retconned this, but I gave it some more thought after I'd written I Belong to the Earth and gradually worked it in. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that the people who have the touch, basically everybody's got a little bit of it, but in yeah. most cases it doesn't disturb you enough. Unless something really traumatic happens to you that yeah. kicks it up a gear. Um, and, and therefore it doesn't really affect you in a way that you even notice you've got it. Some people mm. have a little bit more and they're a bit, you know, they're sensitive. Um, or they have a bit of what, you know, on the Welsh side they call the gleaming, where it's kind of like, yeah, I, I occasionally get intuitions about things, etc. Um, yeah. But 
the really really big gifts and that obviously are huge disadvantages and the idea of that came um sort of crystallized in betwixt and between uh, again with the fairies the she uh, <laughs> and you had the two you had uh danu and domnu the sisters domnu was the firstborn mm-hmm. um and she and danu fell out largely because danu was trying to overtake over everything um yeah. so in a in a a way of defending herself Domnu found a way to have a child of four bloodlines um, who is actually a, a Celtic god as we know it mm-hmm. a god who changes gender depending on who's talking about them yeah. uh, sometimes they are a he sometimes they are a she and they have both wives and husbands canonically in Celtic mythology so I thought this is great so I just had Don roaming around the land sort of spreading their seed having lots of children um, being pregnant a lot and this gave rise to sort of the people who um, had a lot of the touch and obviously they intermarried with other people who perhaps weren't part of Dawn's line um, mm-hmm. to the point where you can't actually tell the difference anymore. That That's how widely spread it became. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but obviously then, you know, you do have sort of certain lines of people where for some reason, you know, the talent seems to be kind of more pronounced. Um you know, towards certain things, um, which, and bearing in mind, obviously, Jules and I are in a shared universe, but <laughs> by no means are, you know, it, it's, you have different family lines, you've got different things. Yeah. Um, and you might have some families who just don't really have anything, and, and then maybe one child does, or you might have some family lines where there's been this consistent one, you know, this consistent kind of sort of family trait, such as with, you know, Emmeline's family, for example whereby obviously um, Grace hasn't inherited anything. She's got a good sense of sort of intuition, as it were, but she's not inherited anything. Whereas Amy and Emmeline obviously did, Emmeline the most strongly initially. Um, and that comes from her father's line. And her father also has a little bit of something as well. And her grandmother, you know, before that as well, etc. cetera. Um, and if you, when you people get the chance to sort of look into Kestrel. You'll see that with with Sammy as well. Sammy comes from an established line um, and inherited his kind of his sort of abilities from his mother and and he has an aunt who has, you know, the same sorts of abilities, but Sammy inherited it particularly strongly. But it's not but it's not that therefore they are the only kind of line in the direct line because to be honest in that way Sammy and Emmeline and you know like loads of other people um even Steve with you know some of his abilities they all have a common ancestor technically then in Don who like Zeus (laughs) (laughs) didn't even make the attempt yeah absolutely didn't even make the attempt just had many many husbands and wives probably all at the same time um, but yeah, and no one actually, no one actually genuinely says, well, yeah, Don is the ex- explanation for all of it. Exactly how this happened is kind of like yeah. an allegorical story with some truth in it. Yeah. Although it, it, I'm, you know, I'm not promising never to bring Don into things again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do like it though that every now and again people, you know, when Amy sort of uses certain powers, they're like, ah, child of Don, and it's just like establishing, oh, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, God, who's in crowned with bone, and he says like plenty new dawn, and a- Amy's like, what did he just say? And Steve's like a child of dawn. It's like oh okay, 
hang on a yeah. minute, he's a Celtic god, wouldn't he actually know? <laughs> Yeah, and of course the the funny side of that is that you do have the you know that you have the child of Don, and then obviously you have children of of Danu who obviously come from the Tuahada Danan, um, in that you've got that sort of line going on. Though of course there is automatic intermixing <laughs> because yeah. they're people, um, but that it's kind of funny in that way then um, because technically you'd say Kestrel, and Kestrel is technically a child of Danu on that side because that's the kinds of power that she has the power that she has is to do with you know comes from danu's line um but she's also very obviously has got mixed in with don because first of all her father is not anything to do with like the, the, the two are had he will be a child of don there will be you know a whole other side line you know of different mixing and things like that but technically yeah if she were to, if amy and and she were to stand sort of next to each other um and to be sort of categorized it would literally just be about how their power happens to have been personified that they would be identified and not actually really anything to do with their exact lineage. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, Amy doesn't even really know what hers is beyond sort of like, yeah, my grandmother was a bit weird as well. You yeah. know, so... Um, whereas, uh, actually, Steve knows quite a bit more about his lineage, but uh, I can't get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to put that away. I'm so excited. Okay, and... um, All right. The other okay. thing... <laughs> sorry. sorry, carry on. Um... The next thing you can do is obviously to make your cast diverse, both in thought and appearance. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're talking obviously diverse in terms of, okay, well, let's give them lots of different appearances and things like that, but also diversity in approach and thought and philosophy and all of that jazz. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not enough to just say, well, I've got a black character and actually it's a white character in a black costume kind of thing, or vice yeah. versa. That's that's not really diversity mm. um, and to be honest if you've got even if you had an entirely white cast what if one of them's Polish and one of them's Irish and one of them's English and one of them's Scottish and one of them comes from the upper classes and one of them comes from working class leads you yeah. know there's going to be so much diversity of thought just within that group it's not always about ethnicity yeah it, it, <laughs> and if you you know even if you want to say okay well they are all part of one family or stuff like that the next thing to remember of course is that if you say well it's historic you know I'm, I'm writing uh sort of <laughs> medieval kind of fantasy um and you know they're all technically they're all siblings they're all part of the family they, they're all in sort of they've they've not been traveling around well first of all to be honest actually um if it's set any time, which is post kind of like <laughs> post people inventing boats, I'm, I've got something to tell you. I'm afraid that people have been running around for a long time. And even if you, even if it's set on some place like England, which is its own tiny island, again, I'm afraid. You know, we have mummies uh, from sort of the Roman period, like Egyptian mummies in in the north of England and stuff like that. Oh my god! I mean, if you go back to Neolithic times, yeah, um, there was actually a huge. That means several different waves of migration during that period alone, yeah, yeah. Um, with different people, and you know, we can actually trace the DNA. It's so fascinating. So yeah. yeah, saying oh yeah, they just lived on this island. Well, it would have to be a very, very isolated island, and very yeah. few of them are actually that isolated. Yeah, um, it would have to be an incredibly isolated island, not least um, because even, 
you know, we say Britain, oh, you know, England, that's an island. Yeah, except, you know, when people were migrating and stuff, you did have Doggerland. Anyway. Um... <laughs> yeah, but oh, oh, this is actually a good point to, to talk about the House of the Dragon, just briefly, something it did that I thought was good. Yeah. Initially, I sort of raised an eyebrow up. Obviously, the Targaryens, one of the classic descriptions in the book, for the books of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. um, The Song of Ice and Fire, sorry, um, is the, the silver hair and violet eyes of a Targaryen. Yeah. Um, it transpires when you read, when you look, you watch The House of the Dragon, that actually this whole sort of silver hair thing is a Valyrian trait. It's not a Targaryen trait. Yeah. And the more they talk about Old Valyria, the more you're like, actually, Old Valyria sounds an awful lot like Atlantis. Because mm. they're talking about this doomed land that's sort of sunk beneath the seas that they will never see again, that had the bright cities, etc. Um, that they all, that these specific um, highborn bloodlines came from, and they are very specifically saying they're highborn bloodlines. Mm. But this is th- these bloodlines are not based off ethnicity, other than that they all came from Valyria, and some of them are black, and some of them are white, and some of them are something else. You know, yeah. um, they're, they're well known families that do genuinely consider themselves better and the rulers of all men, etc. Because mm. effectively they've come from this fantasy version of Atlantis, which I know is a weird thing to say with Atlantis being a myth, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and, you know, even if you said, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm not even going into that sort of level of fantasy, uh, you know, all of these people are going to be from this particular area. So, of course, they're going to have features which would suit that you know particular kind of terrain and yeah it's fair enough you say okay well actually i don't have any black characters because they're all um you know in the sort of the northern hemisphere um in sort of like an england equivalent area where it it wouldn't make sense to have dark skin because you need relatively pale skin in order to 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 actually get that to get that sun to get that vitamin d otherwise they'll die um that's absolutely fine you can say that but that doesn't mean therefore that there isn't going to be some levels of diversity uh because even when you have families or things like that um and going back again to sort of old history and stuff like that one of the other things that people used to do in chieftains and which was part of the reason why um england was so easy to invade by the saxons was that there was then this tradition whereby when they did say well i'm going to give land to my to my children instead of having like a son and giving it all over to the eldest son um they would take their lands and they would divide it among their children yeah and so what would happen is you got these pockets of kind of rulership which became more and more divided more and more divided etc etc until basically that was part of why it was also very easy to to kind of attack because as things became divided obviously fights would break out among different tribes and so they were all busy fighting each other um and they you know they none of them had enough kind of there was no one person who had enough kind of power to just get everyone together and yes they would form sort of allyships with each other but it was very you know it was a lot more difficult so immediately when you do that immediately when you create this thing of okay well i'm gonna have this family yes but are they are they literally all living together do they all have the same mother um are they all raised by the exact same people and if it's a king or if it's something like that then probably not they'll each have different nannies they might have different mothers they might have some of them might have different fathers um bear in mind if we look at the tudor period you know um they aren't even going to be raised in the same castles uh in the same parts of the country um they might actually even the same country 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how many of our rulers were actually raised in France? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, just just, just abroad in general. Um, and then also, you know, bearing in mind when they were born and what their position is, what they're going to therefore be taught. Um, all of these things are going to create a level of diversity. And the other thing to remember with genetics and stuff like that is that it's not as simple as I have blonde that hair, therefore all of my children will have blonde hair. Um, you know, characteristics can sort of lie dormant for a very long time and appear in different things. You can have two fair-haired sort of parents who end up having a child who has very dark hair, for example, um, or who has very kind of naturally dark features, um, <laughs> slightly darker skin. It's perfectly possible. So you you kind of do have to bear that in mind. And then you've got to say, okay, well, perhaps they are part of all the same family, but then what about their spouses? What about their aunts and uncles? What about their cousins, etc.? You can still absolutely have the, that diversity. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, another thing you can do is let the story ask if this bloodline, which does have its advantages, actually is all that great. Are the characters <laughs> better based on merit or are they just assholes with an advantage or even just flawed human beings with an advantage? Yeah. Um, it's This is a funny one because a part of me loves that whole... Uh, the very fairy tale esque of uh, they are the the destined one and therefore they're all right and a part of me is like no I don't want it to be complicated but the more analytical part of me particularly as I'm reading sort of adult books and stuff like that I really love this I love it when it's done well um, and I love it when basically there's this level of self awareness of okay well actually I have got to I do want to rule and I'm in a position to rule but I have got to you know I, I can actually see that my my family haven't always been the best and that needs to be changed, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love Tolkien's noble elves, etc. But let's face it, the elves are a bit prejudiced amongst themselves because the high elves are a bit sort of sneery of the wood elves. Yeah. Sort of like, yes, they're quite good at their job, but they're not really our sort, are they? Yeah. Um, and But I also kind of love Alan Garner's Laius Alpha, who genuine the elves of light they think of themselves as these great noble beings but actually they're kind of bastards to a man <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and I, I particularly love it as well when you see it like a even when it, within a family when they then have prejudices within the family yeah um and actually you see them not acting very very well um and i've recently finished a um a book um, called uh, The Lord of Stariel. And it's quite an interesting one where essentially you have this estate. It's an old family. Um, it's kind of... The, the time period seems to be sort of uh, the 1920s sort of time in that you've you've got kind of electricity coming in. You've got telephones and stuff like that um, sort of being sort of brought in and stuff. Um, and instead of electricity, things are done with magic, but it's very kind of, it's it's very interestingly done. I don't have time to go into it in full. Uh, but essentially you have this estate, which is called um, Stariel. And um, the rule that there is this line basically where the ruler of the estate, the lord of the estate gets chosen um, basically by this magical stone Stariel itself, the, the land itself is kind of 
um, conscious and it decides who's going to rule from within that family. So once the, 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 the Lord dies, then all of the all of the Lord's children and all of the Lord's sort of relatives basically come around, they touch the stone and the stone basically says, you are the next Lord. And all of them are born with something called a land sense. So they have this connection with the land where they can sort of feel the land, they can feel things on the land. And, you know, there's a different level. And the idea is that whoever is the next Lord sort of kind of becomes tied with the land. Um, and I really, really liked this um, because, first of all, it wasn't necessarily this idea of, oh, well, there's this this bloodline, you know, they're, they're inherently better. It's no, no, you have this land that is basically bonded with this family because they've been there for so long and because they're sort of ruling. And it's basically the land says, you are the person who I'm going to work with, essentially. Um, and doesn't really welcome anyone outside of that um so it's, you've you've kind of got this and i thought that that was quite well done because it's not ex actually exclusive exclusionary in terms of saying well no one else can have any magic because that's not true different people you know magic exists but it's this very particular thing which is this is my family and i get to choose who i work with um, yeah. But but of course, within the family, the, the, you know, you don't understand the choosing because the land doesn't choose on an emotional level. The land will choose based on, I don't know, what it thinks it needs. Um, you don't know why the land is choosing because it's not human. Um, and the previous lord, the, the book starts with the fact that the previous lord has just died. And he was a drunkard. Um, he was not a very nice person. He really bullied his t his two eldest children. Um, his eldest son, he didn't feel was up for the task. Um, and his daughter um, basically ran off, um, despite being, you know, landed gentry, she ran off to go and work in a theatre because she, she could do magic and it wasn't considered, she could do illusionary magic and it wasn't considered to be proper for a young lady of her status to be doing that. And so she ran off to what they considered was a den of iniquity to kind of go off and, and become the stage magician, essentially. Um, and so there's all this uppertiness among the sort of the different family members, you know, of those who feel very landed gentry, of those who are much more kind of in touch with the modern world. Um, and the fact that the Lord of Staril doesn't isn't necessarily inherently going to be an excellent person. The Lord of Staril is just going to be the person that the land itself wants to work with for that reason in that you know in that moment um and then once it's chosen it's kind of final until that person dies and i thought that was actually a really good way of doing it yeah yeah i like that definitely um okay so we've obviously done an entire episode on not giving your main character too much candy mm -hmm. um, a magical bloodline can sometimes be too much candy so uh just basically make sure you give them spinach as well <laughs> Yeah, this is and this is going to be one that will differ from person to person. I can think of an example where Jules got really bothered by this in, in a particular series and I actually liked it. Um, so it just goes to show that, you know, two people can actually have very similar tastes in certain things and still kind of completely swing differently on that. Yeah, so, and you go to the most sub of sub tropes and it's kind of like, <laughs> I hate this! And it's like, this is brilliant, give me more! Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so this is definitely, this is something that appears in the Locke Lamora series where Jules got, went, this has really turned me off, she didn't like it at all, and I actually really did like it. So it will, it, you know, at the end of the day, you've kind of got to decide what you want to do and, and what you think your audience is going to like, so. Definitely. 
Um, okay, so sometimes having a completely innocent suddenly, you know, a complete innocent suddenly realise that you're part of a, a magical bloodline uh, can work. Um, I think we all love that. It's just like a do-do-do going along and then suddenly, boom, magical bloodline. <laughs> And yeah. again, I've definitely done that. <laughs> yeah, it's this whole thing where they've come from outside the system and they don't necessarily have baked in ideas about privilege. So particularly if you've got your typical farm boy handed a sword type thing, guess where that trope originated? Yeah. Um, it, it can be a really great way of sort of looking at the entire thing from an outsider's perspective while still enjoying the vicarious pleasures of having a magical destiny thrust upon you. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's done literally in order to basically explain why does this happen to this farm boy? Uh, why does this farm boy end up with this magical sword? And sometimes it's just, well, he happened to find it. Um, but there is something a lot more satisfying because... People don't like it when random stuff just happens, no. um, you know, and you can make it work, you know, if you've kind of got this series of events, but having this whole, well, no, it's not random. This person does have this line um, and that is why they've been able to do this when no one else has. So it can be used to kind of satisfy that. OK, I understand rather than it just feeling kind of weak and OK, well, why did that happen? Even though the reality is that most things are just... I say random, but, you know, <laughs> most of us don't have huge destinies tied to why we happen to find a, you know, a tenor on the ground or something like that. <laughs> there isn't this, because you are the chosen one. It's like, no, because you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Um, so, uh, yeah, it can absolutely work in, in as a way of kind of giving structure to why an event happens. Um, it can also be you know a great way of exploring and i think this is why it happens a lot in children's and ya exploring identity because i think we all feel to a certain degree of kind of realizing who you are or suddenly kind of finding out more about yourself when you're a teenager um i think everybody kind of goes through that because not least because when you're a teenager you suddenly look at your parents and go you're not who i thought you were in some yeah. respects because you're now looking at, at them as as adult humans and you were almost an adult you know you're on that verge as well they're no longer these kind of de deific sort of people who can do everything um they are you know human and you can see their faults and they start to perhaps confide in you a little bit more about this that and the other etc you know there's all of these levels that kind of go into it um and uh <laughs> yeah um so I think that that is another reason is that there is this kind of also this wish fulfillment as, for us as well of basically saying, I want to see a story where maybe I do have a great destiny. Maybe I, I am related to someone, you know, that I admire or, or something cool or that there's something inherent within me. And a lot of people don't like the idea of saying, well, why would you have a random power? That, ra that power can't come from nowhere. So it has to have a, a cool backstory that goes along with it. And part of that can be the sins of the father with the Darth Vader and Luke kind of element of yeah. you're, you're a Jedi because your father was a Jedi, but whoops, he's also a Sith Lord. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so I think that that is why. And again, I think the reason that a lot of people like the outside thing is that it gives them a vehicle into being part of that story because they think it starts off with someone who's ordinary who then isn't ordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 
we were going to talk about our how we've used magical bloodlines but i mean quite frankly we've talked about them a lot during mm-hmm. our little run down there so we'll probably just skip that bit yeah. um but basically that is by and large our take on the magical bloodline legacy destiny type thing whereby yes it can be misused and it can be used in a way that's sort of either accidentally or lazily a, kind of a bad trope but also mm-hmm. it can be a fantastic trope it can be fun it can be uh, a really satisfying thing to read as sort of like an adventure fantasy type thing yeah absolutely so it's just um, how you handle it yeah and it's just being conscious of it i think one of the the things that you want to be the most conscious of whenever you create any kind of bloodline trope is to basically say is it the only one yeah you know is this the only people who have a kind of power and why have i decided to do that um and just kind of be conscious of that in that regard um and again i i am not gonna ever say that you can only do it one way or another because i think that even with tropes that we don't like someone can do it in a way that is engaging and interesting i think it's just about being conscious of why you're doing it but also actually sometimes you might just say well i just like it and that's okay too um that's a perfectly legitimate reason um because we do all sometimes like something which isn't particularly probable um I'm just as guilty in, in that respect. I mean, in fairness, most of us don't read a book or watch a film because we want it to be exactly like our own real lives. No. You know, there's usually an element of escapism required. Exactly, yeah. And we want that escapism. We want to be able to kind of step away. And we also understand how kind of these tropes and ideas differ from, you know, what we'd actually want. Um, you know, there's a there's a big difference between saying, oh, you know, I, I love sort of reading about King Arthur and stuff like that, and then saying, yeah, I, I want to go back to tyrannical, uh, sorry, <laughs> you know, like a tyrannical rule where, you know, essentially one person rules and there's no other, you know, there's no politics, there's no diplomacy, there's no anything like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so just be conscious of it and enjoy it um and yeah what a, uh, it'd be great to hear from you guys what your some of your favorite um examples of this trope are um or examples where you felt like it really didn't work and why you know please do let us know we love hearing from you guys um and love sort of hearing whether you agree with us disagree with us or whether you have any points that you think we've missed um because we are always open to learning more and thinking about things in a different way uh before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and i obviously did just talk about it um i am going to uh recommend uh the lord of stariel which is by an author called aj lancaster now i actually got the first book uh, for free on audio um, uh, on Audible uh, because essentially the, it's a it's a four book series so I think the fourth book came out relatively recently so they let they basically put the first book out for free on Audible I don't know if it'll still be free by the time you guys are listening to this but it's worth checking out I really enjoyed it um, I thought the um, Audible version was excellent very very well read um, it is a bright and interesting um, fantasy and I do think that if you are someone who enjoys kind of that particular era um, and someone who is also super into mythology and fairies and Celtic folklore because yes there are fairies involved um, you will really enjoy this series there is also some nice sort of romantic subplots in there um, and I just I had a 
good time listening to it so do check it out cool thank you very much for that i will because that's sort of been on my radar i just haven't got to it yet i honestly think jules there's gonna there are a few characters who you're immediately going to just like (laughs) just connect with immediately one of the characters i was like this is giving me steve vibes like the Uh, oldest brother the older brother marius i was just there like oh marius (laughs) (laughs) so yeah definitely recommended um and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 